A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. of publishing, few characters loom quite so large as Nicholas Coleridge, CBE. After graduating from Cambridge, he made his name on the London magazine circuit as a quick-witted journalist before joining the team at Tatler under Tina Brown. A few moves later, he ended up back at Condé Nast, where he spent more than 30 years retiring from his role as president of Condé Nast International in 2019. He is now chairman of the Victoria and Albert Museum and has written 14 books, the latest of which, The Glossy Years, we at Shillocks have fallen completely in love with, thanks to its glittering, honest and witty portrayal of the magazine industry and all those salacious celebrity stories. I am thrilled to say he is with me today to tell us more, I hope. Uh, Welcome, Nicholas, to the Shillocks in Conversation with podcast. Well, it's very kind of you to ask me. I'm sitting in my tower in Worcestershire. And this is my main excitement for the early evening. I'm thrilled to see inside your tower because I know that your house is Wolverton Hall because I read all about it in your book. And uh, it's incredibly palatial looking from the outside. Anyway, it's lovely to get a glimpse of the inside and it, it looks beautiful. But look, I want to go back long before you lived at Wolverton Hall and, and talk about your career. You went to school, you went to Eton. You didn't get in first time round. I was a very late developer. In fact, I was an incredibly late developer. I went to a very clever prep school, but it taught me very little. I think I can't have been very receptive to what they were teaching. And I scraped into Eton by the skin of my teeth (laughs) and managed to stay there also by the skin of my teeth for my first two years. But then a miraculously good thing happened and that was there's a marvelous moment isn't there at school when you're able to drop the subjects that you're bad at and I was bad at about two-thirds of them but I was quite good at three and so the minute I got rid of the ones that I was bad at I suddenly came into my own I was brighter than everybody thought it was like taking off a very heavy coat actually and suddenly (laughs) feeling all light. And those subjects were clearly English. I know you were a great debater at school and then at university. What were the other two subjects that you excelled at? Oh, I was very good at divinity, which later upgraded (laughs) its name to theology. And I think it's probably now called comparative religion or something. But it was a very good thing. I recommend it to anyone listening to this podcast who is either themselves thinking of what A-levels to do, or more likely being the parents of children who are choosing their A-level. The easiest A-level you can do by a mile is theology. (laughs) There is a reason for this, and that is that very thick girls' convent schools, and there are a few still left, always encourage their pupils 
um, the ones who are not going to be able to do anything else to do theology. So if you're sort of average at it, you're bound to get an A star. It's almost impossible not. The gods are shining down on you on those days where you sit the exams. They were. And actually, I still have rather an encyclopedic memory for the Bible, which, of course, is of no earthly use. It's about as useful as French, I would say. Well, we may now have to learn French again since I expect the French will stop learning English now that we've left the European <laughs> Union. This when I first used to go to France, when I first worked for Condé Nast, I used to go there probably monthly to have meetings in France. And in those days, in the perhaps early 1990s, everybody expected you to speak French. The French did. And all those bosses of luxury goods groups, all the big luxury houses. When I went to have a meeting with them where I was usually asking them to give us millions of pounds in advertising or something, I had to do it in French. And then there was a marvellous moment when everybody in the world started speaking English or actually, let's face it, American. And (laughs) even in France, everyone suddenly took all meetings in English. And that was very, very lucky from my point of view. I was always (laughs) saying, Monsieur Chanel, s'il vous plaît, va pages to advertising pour Vogue, s'il vous plaît. Well, wonderful. What brilliant French. So French was clearly one of your A-levels as well. French was absolutely not, as you can see here. <laughs> now, I was quite keen on history and still am rather keen on history. So right. I did all of that. But actually, the sort of decisive moment in my teens was when I first discovered glossy magazines. And that really was an entire turning point in my life. I hadn't really looked at them until I was 15 or 16. And why were you looking at glossy magazines age 15, 16? I was looking at them because I was ill and I had been sent home from school to convalesce and I borrowed from my mother a magazine called Harper's and Queen, which was in those days one of the big leading glosses. It has now slightly simplified itself into Harper's Bazaar, but in those days it was a slightly more intellectual, more literary version of a fashion magazine and a very big title at the time. And I remember reading three or four issues of it in bed when I was convalescing and being absolutely transfixed by it. I was transfixed by the paper and that sheen you get on the glossy magazine and the way that the ink sits on the top of the page. And if you tilt the page of a new issue, you can see this incredible sheen of gloss and I was charmed by the mixture of quite serious articles that were run side by side with very trivial articles giving them both equal prominence and by fashion photography which was a very early enthusiasm and still is in fact I collect quite a lot of fashion photography and all of those things the sort of slight kind of low-level snobbery and the glamour of the way Glossy was pulled together. And I can remember being very, very impressed by them. And I read every word and it felt to me like a secret door into another world that I wasn't really in at all. I grew up in West Sussex and uh, very comfortably, but my parents didn't move in a glitzy world at all. We didn't have celebrities as friends or fashion designers. And looking at magazines, I became very interested in that kind of world. And I remember handwriting. I thought I sat up in bed as I got better and I handwrote an article which I sent off to Harper's and Queen, having put it in an envelope 
This was, of course, long before <laughs> email or any obvious way that one would now deliver. And I posted it in the letterbox and it was arrived there. And they very kindly typed it and bought it and published it. I was just 16. What were the contents of your letter? The contents of the article I wrote was the only thing that I could possibly have written about at that age, which was how to survive Hampshire teenage parties. It's very important <laughs> to write what you know. And it was a sort of survival guide to posh teenage parties. Well, have a glass of milk before you leave home, that sort of thing. Oh, that kind of stuff. And, you know, <laughs> protocol of snogging and the, you know, kind of the music at which you should lunge. It clearly amused them no ends. They published it. How incredible. It and after that, having got a taste for it, I started writing a lot for magazines, um, mostly for Harper's. This was while you were at school, sir? Very much so, yes. It was like a parallel world, actually, for me, because, of course, most of my life was involved at, at Eton and then it was my year off but I was writing a lot for magazines at that time. You must have been quite unique amongst your peers in fact I got a letter from somebody the other day who was at school saying could she write a few bits and I thought god that's so self-motivated she was 16 I thought good for you but and I can't imagine many of your friends were doing that. Well they were probably doing oddly enough much more worthwhile things the fact is that I've always been or I found from about then on that I was really quite good at very few things but the things that I was reasonably good at I decided that I had better specialize in polishing <laughs> up those things and so that's what I did I'm not at all a sporty person I was never a great person for playing sport at school or at university and I don't really shoot and I don't play golf and I don't uh, do clay pigeon shooting and there's many many things I don't do so the things that I like doing which are writing and magazines and these days an interest in museums and that kind of parallel world which actually is very close to the magazine world that I love. So you, you left Eton you went to Cambridge was that to read theology? Yes it Divinity? was well let me be clear it was to get in to do theology. <laughs> um, just, just as it's rather easy to get a good A-level in theology, you're much more likely to be accepted for university if you apply to do theology. And there's a very definite reason for this, and it's because colleges at Oxford and at Cambridge nearly always have quite a number of professors, dons, who are paid to teach theology. But it's slightly embarrassing for them that there aren't enough people applying. So if you say that you want to, they're terribly keen. We'll take you. Yep, come bring a friend for your ass. So, so I did that. And I did it for a year. And then I changed to history of art. which That's course, a clever thing they say. They used to say, apply for sociology, didn't they? They used to say, and you change when you get there in Freshers Week, I remember people saying. It must be very depressing for people teaching sociology <laughs> yes. or teaching theology. Because they start off with five or ten pupils. And then, oh, yeah, they find they have none again. <laughs> but, um, I know, I'm not a bit like that. Shame. You switched to history of art at the end of the first I year. Did, which, of course, is a subject which has become a much more serious subject, I think, now mm, than it was. Mm, I, think, I think it's given a lot of respect. It definitely had that. It was marred with that slight theology brush, wasn't it? We all appreciate the intelligence in the world of art now a lot more. I now often refer to my history of art days because it plays very well in the Victorian Albert Museum. But actually, 
It consisted of sitting in the dark, watching slideshows of pictures of neoclassical houses. And then people would sort of elbow each other and say, oh, I stayed at that one. (laughs) (laughs) That was rather how it was. I loved university. In fact, I think one goes to university much too young. I would much rather have gone now where my interest in these subjects has grown much, much deeper. Mm. You might have got a bit more out of it. Anyway, you went through Cambridge. You had a a great time. I remember some very amusing stories about various drinks parties that you recall. So you left university and started life as a local reporter, a newspaper reporter. Well, you're very nearly right, because actually I did my local reporting before university. I did it just after I left school. And I went down to work on a local newspaper in Cornwall. It had a very odd name. It was the Falmouth Packet. And the Falmouth Packet was a famous ship, apparently, in the 17th century. And they named the local newspaper after the Falmouth Packet. And in those days, local newspapers were absolutely thriving. They were terribly profitable in those days. And the one in Cornwall was very profitable and was part of the Beaverbrook newspaper empire. And I went down there for four months, which I think was the absolute perfect time. And my days consisted of going around um, my part of Cornwall on a moped, which I took down with me, and interviewing local people on this subject or that, all of whom had in common that they had very little to say for themselves. One of the terrible jobs you had to do when you were a trainee reporter was you were sent to see married couples who'd been married for 50 or 60 years. And that would be a story. And I would go along and I'd knock on the door and they'd be expecting me and I'd come in and I would sit with a husband and wife and I would say, hello, I'm here from the local paper to write about your 60 happy years (laughs) together. Tell me, how did you first meet? They'd look at each other and say, (laughs) oh, how did we first meet? I don't know. How did we first meet? And the wife said, well, don't look at me. I don't remember how we first met at all. So I'd say, well, don't worry about that. What is the most exciting thing that's ever happened during your marvellous 60 years together? And say, oh, exciting, you ask. Well, I don't know as we've done anything, especially. I think, what about, can you remember anything, dearest? And she'd say, no, I don't think we've done anything exciting at all. And so I was saying, well, it's not too bloody late. You better organise. I thought, God, you've got 24 hours till I have to hand in my husband. Don't you do something? Anyway, I would write this thing down and the headline would say something like, Falmouth couple celebrate 60 years together or Falmouth couple celebrate 60 uneventful years together. (laughs) I would say, are you going to have a party? Oh no, we're not doing anything at all. Anyway, so I did that. And the lesson that I took from it, apart from it being incredibly fun, it's a very fun thing to do when you're... Sounds like an absolute riot. I loved being down there. It was a bit lonely, actually, being miles from anywhere, me and my moped and my notebook. But I realised that local newspapers are not really the way into journalism. I think they probably were in the 1930s, but they certainly weren't by the 1970s. And so I decided that I would keep my accelerate, my foot heavily down on the magazine accelerator. When I left Cambridge, I went to, well, I need, desperately needed a job. I'd given no thought to what to do. And you know, there's an awful moment when you're at university, when you find that all of your contemporaries have been doing that milk round of interviews with companies, grown-up companies like Glaxo, Smith, Clyde. Yes. And I, of course, had done nothing like that at all. So I left 
And I realized that I needed to get a job quite quickly. And I happened to read in the paper that Tina Brown, who was already a very famous journalist, Mm. not as famous as she was going to become later, but still quite famous, had just taken over that very day as the new editor of Tatler, which in those days was an independently owned magazine on its last legs. And I thought, God, she may be needing some staff. So I applied and I became the number 14 in the editorial department out of 14. There were 14 people. Tina was the editor. Then there were 12 in between us and then there was me but working for Tina was very good I mean she's a genius of course she's a very very brilliant journalist but she's rather unrelenting and rather unforgiving or she was in those days if she thought that somebody even if she momentarily thought somebody was no good she would just say I think it's better if you don't come in tomorrow and (laughs) this was before this was long before HR had been invented. Today, of course, no one can fire anybody. It's just no. endless process of HR people giving you second and third and fourth chances and programs and all the rest of it. In those days, you could simply say you're out. If you, you were out. no good, if you were no good, then you didn't deserve the job. I mean, there's there's That's something to be said to that. Maybe a bit of middle ground wouldn't go this, but anyway. Very ruthless. So I rose in the vacuum. So having started as the office junior, suddenly. I was the deputy and that was very very lucky because normally it takes you a long time to work your way up to these positions and Tatler was very fun I learned so much there because it was so poor in those days and it had so little money and it sold so few copies in those days that I had to write four pieces a month easily sometimes I wrote five articles a month and today When I sometimes see staff writers who are writing one article every eight weeks, I think to myself, God, I was churning them out so fast. One every eight weeks? God, I hope none of my team are listening to this, Nicholas. None of them will come back at any one every eight weeks. Well, at the New Yorker, I think it's changed. New Yorker um, in New York was notorious in the olden days for having at least 100 staff writers who were on permanent, incredibly lucrative contracts. Some people would spend three years researching an article, which would eventually appear as a 6,000 word piece. And they were terribly proud of this. But actually, I think we're increasingly working in a world in journalism where you have to be fantastically fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and uh, which would have still have suited me. Um, yes, that said, the New Yorker does still produce some of the most incredible journalism, doesn't it? Um, doesn't it? Isn't Nicholas, it marvellous it still exists? Absolutely. Nicholas, I'm worried that we've skipped your time at the Standard. At what point did the Standard come into your career? Was that after Tatler or before Tatler? The Standard came into my life after I'd been the Tatler for four years and the editor of the Evening Standard asked if I would like to come and do a column and that's what I did and in those days it was very good actually because they used to parcel out the space in a very generous way and so I used to do the whole of the centre spread and the editor was called Louis Kirby. He had a very northern, very matter-of-fact, very old-school newspaper way about him. And he said, what I want you to do, Nicholas, you've got to write one 1,800-word piece a week, one 500-word piece, and one 150-word teaser. And that's exactly (laughs) what I would turn out every week, an 1,800-word piece, a 500-word. And so it made a page or a double page. And it was incredibly lucky because they gave it a lot of celebrity And I learned that the people who rarely read the London Evening Standard, there are two types of people. 
perhaps three. MPs all read it. They're avid readers. Taxi drivers are the main <laughs> readers. Um, every taxi driver, when they haven't got a fare, are just sitting there reading the Evening Standard. And in, in those days, there were a lot of commuters reading the Evening Paper. You know, the Evening Standard in those days sold 700,000 copies a night. Um, wow. When it went free, it was, at the time it went free, it was selling about 150,000 copies a night. Wow. So it shows you how it's changed. I mean, journalism, newspaper journalism of that kind has changed so much because of people sitting on trains, looking at screens all the mm. time. And mm. the same thing I noticed towards the end of my time in magazines, that when I first started, you would walk down a commuter train at night. And I always used to look and see what everyone was reading as I walked down the train. Sometimes I would walk through about eight coaches just to get a sense of what readers were looking at. And you would see young women especially, and you would see Cosmopolitan, Cosmopolitan, Marie Claire, Marie Claire, Glamour, Marie Claire, Cosmo, Cosmo, Glamour, 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 Marie Claire. Yeah. And if you did the same journey now, actually you would see people staring at an iPad with earphones on, headphones mm. on, mm. and they would be watching Friends, Series yeah. 16. There'd be no mistaking which decade you were in with that. Yeah. None uh, at all. Even if, even if you're in a rickety old tube carriage, you still know which decade you're in. <laughs> hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nicholas, tell us about the column you wrote for The Standard. I have to say, reading your book, there were moments in bed when I had tears rolling down my face and my husband getting quite cross. And he'd turn around and he'd be like, honey, I'm trying to get sleepy here. And I said, I'm really sorry, I'm reading my book. I can't help it if it's making you laugh. He said, well, can you go and sleep in the spare room if you're going to read that book before you go to bed? And there were a couple of stories. One I loved of you dressing up as a chauffeur for Prince Andrew's oh, 21st. God, yes. yes, and goodness. And who knew what lay ahead for all of us, actually? But I know. Done, the Evening Standard loved it when I did stunts. And when I was in my early 20s, I was about 24 when I went to the Evening Standard. So I was there from when I was 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, that sort of period. And it was very fun to do stunts. I didn't mind. I liked doing stunts in those days. We had the idea, the Duke of York, Prince Andrew, was having his 21st birthday party at Windsor Castle. And I'd heard that the royal family also give a party for chauffeurs, which goes on simultaneously. 
So the main party is upstairs in Windsor Castle and down in the basement, in the cellars, in the torture chambers, they have a big party for the chauffeurs who have come along dropping the main guests off. So I borrowed a chauffeur's kit and I drove two friends who were going to the main party. And then I went down to the chauffeur's party and I interviewed very surreptitiously about 300 chauffeurs, all in their peaked caps and their uniforms. And they were very candid about the people they drove for, some of them being terribly rude. And was... do, you, do you remember any specifics? Well, there were two dukes, but perhaps I won't say which. And there were a couple of minor members of the royal family's chauffeurs. And there were some tycoons. And there were people who drove for diplomats. And they all had very funny things to say. And they were very envious of what they thought was going on in the main party upstairs. And they kept saying things like, it'll be all right for them upstairs. They'll all be having lobster and caviar. <laughs> Look what they've given up. Actually, what the Queen had given the chauffeurs was in fact incredibly nice. Old ham and pork pies and coleslaw and boiled potatoes, that kind of thing. But they were all frightfully jealous. Just about here, the disco, miles above. And there was, you know, was, you could date sick, but there were things called Lady in Red. <laughs> I expect the Duke of York was... He was having an absolute was up to. But, <laughs> You got a good story out of that one, did you? Those sort of things were very fun. And, and it was very old Fleet Street to be working on the Evening Standard in those days. It was still, believe it or not, hot metal when they were setting all the articles in type, where hundreds of printers were taking the letters one by one and setting your articles at breakneck speed wow. before, of course, everything changed in five minutes flat when the computer was invented. Yeah, yeah. But God, amazing to think of it like that. The other story I have to reference from The Standard was your story of grabbing a friend and pretending you were prospective parents of a school where the headmaster had done something rather oh, inappropriate, <laughs> shall was, we say. Uh, well, he was the most it was such a funny story. He was an appalling man who had clearly behaved in the most ghastly, both sadistic and rather paedophilic way to the children in his care. It was a school in Suffolk and it had all been exposed in the news of the world and all of the newspapers wanted an interview with this headmaster who naturally was saying nothing because he was the subject of a police investigation. And I had the idea of ringing the school pretending that I was a parent. And I took along a friend, I wasn't married then, who wore a wedding ring. And we had this totally made up story that my brother and his wife had died in a car crash. It was a very clever story. Which I should laugh, but when I read it, I laughed so much. <laughs> the point that they, your brother was dead, so you, you were taking on the children. And we landed with these two boys aged 11 and 9, and we'd read something in the papers about <laughs> high-tab vacancies, and we wondered if he could take them very quickly. And he said they could. So I talked to him a lot about the school. And the marvellous thing was, as we were driving in, dressed up as parents, I was looking very <laughs> conventional, we could see the journalists from the Telegraph and the Times standing at the school gates wishing they were coming in. Two dreadful things happened afterwards. The first was that as we were trying to leave, having completed the interview and still pretending we were parents, the school secretary tried to get me to write out a cheque for terms <laughs> fees about £10,000, which I obviously didn't want to do. And then the article came out 
and it caused rather a stir. The headmaster was sacked, needless to say, quite soon afterwards. And I was in an antique shop about maybe six weeks after that in Pimlico. And I was just looking at a table I was thinking of buying, when who should come into the antique shop but the headmaster? And it was like a scene from P.G. Woodhouse, um, when Stone sees Worcester. Suddenly this headmaster goes, you! <laughs> Boom. And he <laughs> chasing me. And I, anyway, I got away. But it was days <sighs> in the stand. It was very funny. They were my unrespectable days. And then I went from there uh, back to Harpers and Queen, where I very quickly became editor of it. And my res more respectable days started from then onwards as I turned 30. Well, Nicholas, thank you for humouring me with those stories. Let's focus on your career. As you said, those cavalier days of dressing up as prospective parents were behind you and you went to edit Harper's and Queen. How did you feel about editing a women's magazine for a start? And talk to us about your time there. I mean, were there other men in the industry editing female titles? Well, there were at that point. My predecessor as the editor of Harper's was a man, an Italian man named Willie Landles, and he had been doing it for about 20 years. And Harper's and Queen in those days was a more unisex magazine. I mean, of course, it was predominantly bought mm. by women. I would say that it would have been in those days 70%, 75% bought by women and perhaps 30% bought by men and certainly 30% read by men. Women are much bigger purchasers of magazines generally. And at that time, men wouldn't have read glossy magazines at all. Everything that was to follow the launches of GQ and Esquire and all of those magazines came 10 years later. I was very lucky to edit Harper's at the age that I was because I wasn't quite 30. And normally it would have was considered a bit of a plum job and something that you would have done after you'd been deputy editor somewhere else for a long time. So they took a slight chance on me and it was a very steep learning curve, I can tell you. But we got a very good team together very quickly. And that, of course, is always, always the key to having a lively magazine. You simply have to have around you. Probably 12 people is enough. I mean, actually, we had many, many more than that on Harper's in those days. But if you have 12 very clever people, some people recognize a good idea the minute they see one and they can run with it and turn it around and turn it into something that works and they can get the tone of voice. The magazines that are lasting, by the way, to make a, a side point, the mm. magazines that I think are going to last into the future are the ones in print that have a very clear tone of voice and a very clear niche and a very clear purpose. And I mean, examples that I've never been involved with particularly, but magazines like Country Life, like The Spectator, of Vogue, of course, Tatler in its different way, The Economist. These are all examples, the oldie, of magazines that have a very, very clear purpose. The magazines... Mm -hmm that are now having challenges are the ones that were number two or number three in any market when they were people's second choice or third choice. And for them, I think it's more difficult. Go back to Tina, who is obviously, I mean, she's a massive pin-up of mine. I've read her book, highly recommend it to anybody who might have enjoyed Nicholas's. I, I would highly recommend Tina's book as well. But what did you learn from her that you took to Harpers and Queen? There must have been, I always think, one's early bosses make a real impression on you, for better or worse. Let's focus on the good. What were the things that you took from Tina with you to Harpers and Queen? From Tina Brown, I learned the importance of not being boring. Some people 
even though they're proper magazine journalists, are, have a kind of leaden way of writing and become very kind of over-serious and over-respectful and over-laborious in the way that they write. Whereas I think that the, what one should always be aiming for is trying to make every sentence as much as possible to be alive and you have to have a point of view. Sometimes one ploughs through an interview, we've all read them with an actress, say, and at the end of it, you have no sense of what the journalist really thought of the actress. It mm. turns into a list of movies that they've appeared in, all italicised, and mm. actually you just turn your way through it and you've forgotten it. I think you need, as a writing journalist, Tina always encouraged this, to have a clear style of your own and to try and write in such a way that people refer to your article and recommend it to somebody else and remember it into the future. In the newspaper yeah. business, they used to have a, a very odd phrase called the E. Doris Factor. And I didn't know what people meant at first when they talked about the E. Doris factor. But what it's meant to be is a reader of Let the Sun or the Sun newspaper. And he looks up to his wife and he says, E. Doris, look what it says here. And it's got to make you to be so interested in what you're reading. It's that you have to read it aloud. I'm going to use that. I love that. The E. Doris factor. Brilliant. And on that note, that really brings me neatly onto the question I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, you've been very outspoken about unfair criticism of the fashion industry, particularly by certain newspaper editors who might look down on it. How would you elaborate on that? I love talking about the fashion industry. Although I published and had to do with numerous fashion magazines, I'd never thought of myself as a fashion person. I couldn't, for example, if I was shown 15 skirts, I wouldn't necessarily instantly be able to tell you which was the coolest one and which was the right one. But if you've worked in magazines for a very long time, you do pick it up intravenously. Yeah. And the more that I knew about the fashion world and the more that I worked with editors who did know about it and with the creative directors and fashion editors who did, the more respectful I was of it. I think the thing about the fashion world is that it's the fastest way in the world to lose money if you get it wrong and an incredibly lucrative way of making money if you get it right. And I became terribly interested in the, the whole virtuous circle of fashion, the way the, the part that's played by photographers, by models, by celebrity models, by certain stylists, by photographers, and what they could bring to certain moods and certain magazines. We used to Condé Nast to spend absolutely ages making sure that the best photographers only work for us. And this was done in a mixture of bar extreme flattery a lot, <laughs> a, a tremendous amount of thanking and, and glorifying, mixed with a kind of veiled threat that if ever their work was seen in L or Harper's Bazaar, that would be the end, sudden death, not <laughs> appearing in any more Condé Nast magazines. And... If you're a photographer of fashion, there is an automatic understanding that you want to be working for Condé Nast more than for anybody else, because that is how your peer group judges you. <laughs> well, I mean, who didn't want to work for Condé Nast when they were, you know, at the, in the early days of their career? We all did. We, you know, me included. 
Can you talk to us a bit more about your journey at Condé Nast? Yes, I will. I edited Harper's for about four years and I'd intended to stay there forever. If you had asked me in 1988, would I ever think of leaving? I wouldn't have had an answer, but I would have had no plan to leave at all. I think I thought that I would do 10 or 15 years there. I was adoring it and the magazine was doing well and I had this great team and all sorts of good people working on the fashion side of it at that point. And it was a a, a crack squad, as they say. And then out of the blue, I had an overture to go and work for Condé Nast as initially editorial director, which is sort of editor-in-chief of the British group. And Condé Nast were the deadly enemies. They were very much the dark side, I thought, then. And I had obviously spent the previous four years fighting against Condé Nast. If anyone said anything nice about it, I would make a face and come up with all sorts of good reasons why it wasn't nearly as good as Hearst, where I was working at that. But it's rather interesting when somebody who you've been perhaps fancying from afar, but being rude about, suddenly comes calling and I was asked if I would like to do this, take this position. And it was a very big decision for me because it was like going from Christie's to Sotheby's or from Mm. Lazard's to Rothschild's. And it seemed a very dramatic decision. And I took it and everybody said to me, God, you're stupid. It's such a snake bit at Condé Nast. You won't last six months there. I mean, they'll they'll (laughs) eat you up and spit you out. It was rather rough the first few months because getting to know a much larger company in which there was a big job to be done there. Tatler, which had been bought by Condé Nast by this point, was in a very parlous state at that exact moment. And GQ had been launched by Condé Nast and had been, wasn't going terribly well in the early year of it. And I think actually people wondered whether it would even last. And it was selling an extremely small number of copies. And then there were magazines like House and Garden, Uh, where the editor was 84 and was clearly coming to the end of his tenure. And there was Vogue with Liz Tulberis as the editor, which was doing well, but she was furious that I was there. And the circulation was a little bit soft. And there was a lot to do. And what was your job title? Editorial director. It was rather like being, I mean, the editor's reported. The baddie. It's like being the baddie, isn't it? Slightly. Correcting other people's homework and making changes to things. And we did do a lot in that first two years. And I changed with the groups. I changed, we changed a lot of how magazines looked. We changed a lot of the typefaces. And we brought in a lot of new editors and hired a lot of new people. And the very lucky thing was that it did make a difference and they did look much better and they sold more. And so that was really the beginning of my time at Condé Nast. What other skills that you've got that people who might be listening could learn from? Do you know, I think that there are people who are better at everything that I'm relatively good at or part of it. But I'm quite good at two things. One, I sometimes am quite good, I think, at understanding what the taste of the reader is likely to be across lots of different magazines. Two, you have to be able to understand or have a sense of what the readership is on different, and what they're coming to that magazine for, and making sure that the distinctive voice of it stays distinctive. Um, Mm -hmm. The worst thing that can happen is when you have a stable of magazines, like say you had some responsibility for 12 or 14 magazines at that 
sort of time. If they all start to look a bit the same and they start, their mission starts to blur. So you will have to have in your mind as editorial director, a pretty clear idea of what house and garden is and what house and garden could be without scaring off the mm. people who've been loyally reading it. If you've got 140,000 people a month who are paying four pounds to buy house and garden, the stupidest thing you can do is to make it completely different and bring in an unsympathetic editor who wants to change it into a different mm. title. You don't want it to suddenly turn into L decoration or wallpaper. And I think I probably was pretty good at having a, a fairly clear notion of what would make Vogue or the World of Interiors or GQ or Condé Nast Traveller successful. And then finding editors who agreed with my assessment but could then make it much better than what I'd imagined <laughs> because they were working on that one title. So I think I was probably quite good at that. And I think I was also quite good at projecting what each magazine was supposed to be when I was talking to other people. So, for example, when I was explaining a magazine to an advertising agency, when I was explaining it to Chanel or Dolce & Gabbana, making it seem sexy and attractive and People quite like working there. The other thing about me, which is probably for others to say, in a sec, I'll tell you what I'm bad at. I'm fairly good at not falling out with people unless I want to. On the whole, I found it good to find editors and publishers and advertising directors and creative directors who settled into a magazine and really understood what the readers wanted. It sometimes takes you a bit of trial and error. You know, you mm. see some articles are very, very popular and some no one ever mentions. And so bit by bit, you do more of the ones people like and less of the ones that people don't mentioned. The things I had to learn and had very little experience of quite quickly after I'd been editorial director, I also became the managing director. So I had to take on a lot of other things like the financial side, the P&L, the profit and loss, circulation, production, understanding, and making money for the Newhouse family who owned it. I was very interested in learning all that stuff as well. And I always divided my day so that in the morning, I did the boring stuff. I used to get in and still get in, actually, to whatever I'm doing early. I'm always well going by seven. Um, right, gosh. That's when I do the more boring stuff that you need to concentrate on. And then in the afternoon, it was my pleasure and my joy to go from magazine to magazine and see on the boards covers that they were doing and layouts and also the pagination of layouts. People don't always realize that the order in which you publish articles in a glossy magazine makes a considerable difference to people's pleasure when they read it. So when you look in what they call the well, which- Tell people what the well is. I think most yes. people won't know what the well is. In a glossy magazine, there are two sections. I remember when I was younger and, and a friend of mine was, ad manager at Vogue and she said something about the well and I thought I'm too embarrassed to ask what the well is and I tried to google it and I couldn't find the answer anywhere I mean this is this is early I was probably asking Jeeves I probably wasn't googling it. anyway I couldn't find the answer it took me several years to work out what the well was so anyway as you were about to explain let, let me explain what how a magazine works as far as advertising and editorial is concerned the first half of the glossy magazine um, anyone who reads them will have noticed, has advertisements on one side of the double page 
and articles on the other. And they tend to be, on the whole, more words led, and they have a lot of the reads are there. And that's where a lot of the advertising positions for which the advertiser pays more, play, pays more money are positioned. Then you have a long run in the middle that might run to as long as 60 pages where there are no advertisements. And that's where the fashion and the big long articles that have a lot of photographs and portrait photography and all the rest of it sits. And that is unbroken by advertising and allows the editor to have, as you might call, uninterrupted concentration of the reader. But the order in which you run the articles makes a big difference to the pleasure for the reader. So you might typically want to start if it was a magazine like Harper's or Tatler or um, Vanity Fair with something that's part big. You would start probably with a double page, big pictures. Then you and the first article would very likely be six pages. Then you would want to have something that's a spread but short then you might have another four page, then you might have something serious, but not put it too early in the run, then something funny, then a long run of fashion perhaps, or you might break the fashion in the middle with one more four to six page article. And then at the end of that, you might move on to something like decorating pages. That anyway, was how we tended to paginate magazines. I think it's so fascinating. There's there's just so much that goes into magazines. And God, we could spend hours talking about that. But I think, you know, the average average consumer reader isn't aware of that. I have one question for you. What's more expensive, inside front cover or back cover? Inside front. Is more money than the back cover. Yes. The back cover, until about the mid-1980s, was a very popular site and then became less popular with time. The main luxury advertisers, by which I mean the main fashion luxury, the advertisers are very keen to be in the first 20% of a magazine and ideally will be in the first 10% or in the case of certain brands like Dior, Chanel, Gucci would like to be in the first 5%. They're tremendously competitive with each other about who runs first because they see their status to some yeah. extent reflected in the order in which the advertising Yeah, yeah. Runs. I have to ask you, do you remember what the most a page, a single page of advertising ever went for in any of the magazines during your tenure? Yes, a good double page in Vogue would be about £32,000 before wow. a commission. And so when an advertiser has sometimes happened, if they took three consecutive spreads at the front, you can see that that is £100,000 close enough in one issue, in one magazine for one month. And basically, these are things that I could never have spoken about when I was working for Condé Nast, but I now feel I can more easily. There's quite a big difference in price between those front row of the stalls positions that everybody wanted, and for much less money, if you, if you want to go up beyond classified or into the very back of the magazine, you could probably be in the same issue for £8,000 for a full page. But if yeah. you want to be in those power positions that the big, that Dolce & Gabbana wanted, that Bottega Veneta wanted, all those companies, yeah. Armani, very particular where they ran, you paid a lot. One of the reasons for me asking that question is, is really just to 
highlight the point that you have had the most phenomenally successful career. You went on to be president of Condé Nast International. I think you referenced spending a lot of time in Heathrow terminals or more than you more than you were at home for a while. You opened magazine after magazine in market after market after market. It was a very, very good period. I mean, the truth is that from roughly the late 1970s until perhaps to 2015, somewhere like that, it was such an experience time of explosion. By the time when I joined Condé Nast International, we were publishing 39 magazines a month. And by the end, we were publishing 140 magazines a month, which is an incredible rate of growth. And all of these new markets opened up, India, Japan, China, Russia, all the old communist countries, which nobody ever thought would be readers of Vogue, turned out the minute they had the chance to be incredibly keen readers of Vogue and Tatler and Architectural Digest and all the other ones that we launched. And I remain pretty optimistic about the future of magazines, even though during the pandemic at the moment, I know that Mm. my successors are having to pedal very hard. But I think that when the COVID crisis ends, I think there'll be an enormous resurgence during the roaring 20s or whatever Mm. we're meant to call them. Oh, bring back the flap address. I'm I'm ready for it, I tell you. I'm with you. I may well be in the digital world, but there is still, even for me, there is still nothing like sitting down and having, you know, real peace because that doesn't involve anything digital. If there was a magazine you could save for the long term, which one would it be? Well, I'm not going to mention any one that I've ever worked on because I think it's unfair. It's like choosing one child mm-hmm. um, over the others. But I think I would I would hope that country life lasts forever. And I hope that The Spectator lasts forever. Those are two magazines that I pay for with my own money and, and love them. Well, then the proof is in that, isn't it? My team would not speak to me again if I didn't ask you about a few of the characters that you met in the heyday of your career. I've got three people I'm going to ask you about. First of all, it's, it's got to be Princess Diana. You mentioned her on several occasions in your book. There are some amusing stories in there. What can you tell us about her that wasn't in your book? Well, the thing about the Princess of Wales uh, at the period when I was first working for Condé Nast was that she used to come in there a lot to Vogue House. And she had a very particular reason coming in. And that was that she found it very embarrassing to go to shops in Sloane Street or in Bond Street and try on clothes by a designer and then buy nothing and not get something. Because when she came in, there was such excitement and everyone working there was so thrilled. And if she then didn't buy something, she felt that she'd caused great disappointment to everyone who worked there. So she had an arrangement with Vogue that if she wanted to try a new design, the magazine would call in quite a lot of clothes from that design mm. and buy them on. And the fashion editors there would look at them with her and they would say, you know, we think you look great in this one. This one I don't think works quite so well. This one is marvellous. Her people would then ring the designer and say, the princess saw some clothes you're lent to Vogue and wants to buy two of them. And she found that much easier. So there was a time when everyone got into the lift and the lift doors opened in Vogue House. There was the Princess of Wales. And if you were getting in, it was all slightly embarrassing because you didn't want to sort of um, look like you were, you know, that annoying thing when people immediately start talking to somebody in a kind of gabbly kind of way. On the other hand, it would be very rude to um, stand there. To say nothing. 
as if you didn't know who she was. So it was that was always very awkward. And then later came to lunch and used to come to our parties. And I have to say that I found her so utterly beautiful in the flesh. And when I look at pictures now, photographs now from that period, and I look at her, I don't see it quite as much as I did then. And it's so interesting how one's eye changes. And I think one's taste changes and one's expectation changes. She had something about her, this incredible glow. And star she, quality, yeah. Incredible star quality. She was very flirtatious to everybody. I mean, to everybody, men, to all men. And I think that was one of the extraordinary things about her. Men of all ages, frankly, fell for her. She was quite tactile, which is an unusual thing. I mean, normally, if you have lunch with a woman who isn't your girlfriend or your wife, people don't sort of touch you all the time. It, it doesn't <laughs> on the whole happen. Maybe it does at university a bit, but not later. But the princess did. There's a big one for putting her hand on your shoulder or her hand on your hand or your hand on your wrist. And of course, nothing is more sort of generally sexy than that. It's, it was a sort of sad story, wasn't it? Because mm. I'm a huge fan of the Prince of Wales and I think he's an amazing power for good, but it was just a wrong alliance mm. for them both. You are incredibly supportive and generous about him in your book. I thought he came across very well. Thank you. I think he, his instincts on many, many things mm. about architecture and about the countryside. And the environment. The yeah, he doesn't get enough support, does he, are, really, for are, it? And nearly always right, and he's a bit of a trailblazer, so I'm a mm. fan. OK, so we've done Princess Diana. I've got two more. The next one is the Beckhams. Oh, God. There was a time when I was running the British Fashion Council and Victoria Beckham was at absolutely the zenith of her moment. I mean, actually, I think her moment continues to this very day, but it was like when she and David Beckham were the, even more the golden couple, or the yeah. new golden couple. And we always longed to have Victoria Beckham to all these British Fashion Council awards and everything that we did. And when she came, she always insisted on bringing her entire family. And this is <laughs> the weirdest thing. So we would invite her and then you'll get a message saying that Victoria did want to come, but she wanted to bring her sister Louise and her sister Louise's partner and her mum and her dad and her dad's brother. And they all wanted to be on the top table. So the whole of the top table sort of became the Beckham family table. So for there was a period of my life when I was always sitting next to different <laughs> members of the Beckham Victoria's great aunt. <laughs> they were all there. There was no, no one who wasn't there. And of course, they, their lives, the Beckham family's lives, have been transformed by the fame of their daughter and their son-in-law. And I always felt that they had not really learnt how to cope with it mm. very much in that they were massively proud of it and loved all the attention, but didn't know how to get any privacy at all and weren't sure whether they wanted privacy. And I could sense they were in a terrible muddle and they probably still are actually. Well, I mean, same can be said for all these reality TV stars that, you know, terrible things have happened to, haven't they, as a result of Love Island and probably all that nonsense you're not remotely interested in. Well, well I, and, and no, I, I do occasionally turn on Love Island. Oh, and no. I watch, like Don't everybody, I look at the men. God, I mean, those incredible, amazing torsos and extreme thickness 
of, of all, and they all look oddly alike, the men. They do. Very no, gelled kind of way. And then the girls, who are unlike anyone that I've, they're certainly as different from the women at Condé Nast as can yes. possibly be. As can possibly be, yes. Um, the final person that I wanted to ask about was Anna Winter, because I really will not have any colleagues tomorrow if I don't ask you to tell me something about Anna Winter. Well, Anna Winter, what a phenomenon she is. I knew her first before she started wearing dark glasses, uh, which was a big moment in her life. But for the first six or seven years when she was editing and was a figure, she only wore dark glasses about half the time and she used to take them off at lunch. And when I was editing Harper's, she was the editor of British Vogue at that time. And we would have lunch together, not more often than once a year, but about once a year. And she didn't wear her glasses. And it was much easier I found communicating with her in those days because you could see the whites of her eyes. You could see her burning ambition. I thought she was incredibly, I think she is incredibly beady. I always wonder with Anna whether she sort of wished that she'd done something else at a certain point in her career when she, I think she's the greatest editor of American Vogue that there's probably ever been. And I think she's a, a genius at editing American Vogue, but she's done it for so long. And I just wonder whether she would have been happier if she'd done other things. Mm. But anyway, she's the great legend of, uh, of our age. She is. And what, what's your view on people wanting to get into the industry now? You know, journalism is not well paid. You know, there, there's obviously the publishing side of the business. There's there's sales and the money making. And, and, you know, certainly that's not badly paid if you get to the top. But frankly, you don't go into magazines and journalism to make money. I always say to people, if you live and breathe to write, and if you are seriously, you know, the most talented person in your school, university, then, you you know, you might have a chance of a really successful career. But it's bloody hard. What advice would you give to people that want to go into that world? Because it's a very different world now. And, you know, there aren't as many jobs. Magazines are closing all the time. What advice would you give to people? Well, I would say that it's still one of the most fun things that you can do. I think it's one of the few things where you're probably paid the same now as you were paid 25 years ago, and in many cases paid less. And one of the main differences is that because the number of magazines has become fewer, and because the colour supplements on the uh, newspapers are um, less profitable than they used to be, it's much less easy to zigzag around and get yourself paid more and more and more all the time. For the majority of my time at Condé Nast, we would have all the time a deputy editor who was earning, I don't know, in those days, 120,000, something like that, would be headhunted by, let us say, the Independent magazine or the Saturday Telegraph magazine. And then the editor would come into my office and say, we've got to do something. We've got a problem here. Betsy is being headhunted by the Telegraph and they've offered her 130,000. We've got to match it or beat it. Otherwise, we're going to lose her and we can't afford to lose her. And then we would probably match the, the money. And then six months later, somebody else would come along. Oh, my God, Zoe has been offered now the job and she's being offered 20,000 more. I think that doesn't happen anything like as much as it did. 
Obviously, in a practical point of view, anybody entering journalism today has got to make themselves completely au fait with uh, digital, and they've got to be digital perfect, and they've got to be very fast. And it's a taken for granted given now that in addition to writing your long form journalism, you've also got to be quick and able to do blogs and posts and Instagram and everything, everything, which makes it a different thing. I think we're dealing in a world where people have shorter attention spans than they used to. People graze journalism much more than they used to. I think with certain articles that I read in certain magazines, I sometimes think that if you added a line on page six of it that said, ring this number and you will be sent 100 pounds and you just put it into the text, your money would be fucking <laughs> Whereas in the older days, if you read 3,000 word articles and considered it a perfectly normal thing to do. So it's changed. Mm. But on the plus side, it is still an incredible privilege to work on a magazine, to be in that world which gives you a right to interact with very interesting people, and to have a point of view on them mm. and to be part of that creative process yeah. and also part of the commercial process. The interplay between creativity and commerce was what I utterly loved. And would you agree that actually to be a successful journalist these days, you know, it is important to have a commercial eye and understand the need for the two to play hand in hand and, and be so tightly connected to make it in a world where so many aren't? I think it helps if you have a commercial eye. I think the thing that helps more than anything is to be curious. Mm. Some people are not curious. You find that from sitting next to people at dinners or at lunches or something, and you're talking to some people, and frankly, they never ask you one damn thing. Oh, Nicholas, before we finish, I, I have to say, you're such a brilliant storyteller that um, you made somebody who's, who's uh, you know, I'm sort of embarrassed to say after you've talked so beautifully about culture um, and creativity, that I'm not someone that sort of longs to waft around art galleries. Well, I wasn't, perhaps, until you started to write about the V&A, where you are chairman. And a uh, hand on my heart, when we are out of this mess that we are in now I will be through those doors looking up at the ceilings that you talk about and of course the works of art on the wall and all the other bits and pieces in there you're clearly loving the role you left Connie Nass I'm sure there are lots of options on the table why was this one so of interest to you finish off with a few words on the V&A and how passionate you are about it oh I love talking about the V&A it's been my favorite museum in London right way back into my youth. I wrote my university dissertation in the uh, National Art Library there. And the V&A holds the national collections of three things that I'm very interested in, fashion photography, fashion, and Indian art. And they're all in the V&A. And around the time that I was thinking that I would be retiring from Condé Nast in maybe three years time. I became very involved in the V&A, first on the board of it and then as chair of it. Um, and it was the natural museum for me to be part of. And it's a huge privilege and so fun to do it. We've got a great director in Tristram Hunt who we brought in from politics. I like the people who work there. I like the seven miles of corridors that we have, seven miles of corridors and galleries. Unreal, unreal. I like the mix of commerce, which it is, and the creativity of the incredible run of exhibitions that the V&A has been doing lately. I mean, I think all the way from the 
I'm talking the ones during the time I've been involved that I've particularly loved, the David Bowie exhibition, Alexander McQueen, Pink Floyd, Dior, of course, all of those. And then we've got a great one coming up this year on Persian art called Epic Iran, which is going to be stellar. It's such an interesting place, the people who work there. And so I'm very, very lucky to have this role where I think what one's really doing is spending a lot of time liaising between the government, because the British, we, the British taxpayer, own the VMA, and trying to make sure that the governance and that we have the right people working there. It's very fun. Well, that certainly comes across in the book, and I will be through those doors at the Persian exhibition um, as soon as the world allows. Nicholas, there's so many things we haven't touched on. I'm so thrilled. People will, will be able to tell listening how much I have enjoyed this podcast. I haven't enjoyed a book like I enjoyed The Glossy Years, but I don't know how long. It was such a delight. I cannot encourage people listening to read it more. I, I, I hope your book sales have gone through the roof in the last few months because I don't shut up about it. The only thing that I managed to find anywhere close was Lady Anne Glenkiner's autobiography. That's what I'm following it up oh, with. That good. I it's thought that wonderful. Was a brilliant book by Anne Glenkiner. I absolutely adored it. When I had COVID, I read it and it kept me alive, I think. I wanted to get to the end. She is well. The two go hand in hand and um, yeah, well, get your hands you. on a copy of The Glossy Years. You're well again, are you, after your oh, bad yeah, COVID? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm entirely recovered. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was great fun. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends and come back soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.